Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Rev Up, the podcast where we talk about all things revenue growth, sustainable revenue growth, profitable revenue growth. Today, uh, I was lucky enough to be on the Sales Wisdom podcast with Charles Cormier. Uh, we talked about a whole range of different things. Uh, Charles honestly asked me some pretty tough questions, uh, put me on the spot a little bit, put me under pressure, uh, but we had a super fun conversation. Uh, really excited for everybody to hear it. We talked about uh, the future of outsourcing and the impacts that AI are having on the outsourcing industry and will continue to have. We talked about the differences between locations in terms of um, how you manage what you can expect from those locations and the social norms, these sorts of things. Um, we also talked about um, some sales aspects, you know, really talked about uh, the role of nostalgia in consumer choices. I thought that was a pretty interesting angle to go down. Um, as always, the Rev Up is brought to you by Trust the Process. Uh, at Trust the Process, we help small businesses grow by helping them leverage offshore affordable resources, the right person with the right skills at the right price, uh, as well as technology in order to grow businesses profitably. Uh, you can find out more and get in touch with us at ttprocess.co. Uh, fill in any form there and you'll be able to book some time and come and have a chat to, to one of the members of the team, uh, including myself. Um, we also at Trust the Process are doing exactly what you are listening to here uh, for other businesses. If you are a B2B business uh, that would like to have a content strategy centered around expertise, so a podcast, uh, for example, where you can share your thoughts, share your capabilities, uh, share your positioning, your models, etc., with the world and help them to do better business, uh, and then use that content to release a podcast, videos, blogs, emails, social content. Uh, Trust the Process now has a content as a service product. As I said, jump on to ttprocess.co. Uh, and under our services, you will find content as a service uh, where we can help you do exactly this, what you're listening to now. Um, so very excited for this conversation. Uh, thanks again to Charles Cormier for having me on uh, the podcast. Uh, and over to us. Enjoy. Ben, can you introduce yourself? Tell us a bit more about sure. your pod, yourself, and trust the process. Sure, Ken. Thanks for having me on the on the show. Really appreciate it. Um, yeah, so a lifetime salesperson grew up, uh, grew up in sales from like 19 years old, selling commission only knocking on doors, selling in shopping centers, doing all that sort of stuff. Uh, hired my first team member, uh, for a sales team when I was 19 years old, um, came up through the ranks, you know, moved all over the world, ran teams all over the world, lived in Singapore with team members in 14 countries, 200 plus team members, $75 million revenue, that sort of stuff, and run teams all the way down to a couple of people and a couple of million dollars of revenue. And uh, yeah, currently at Trust the Process, um, which is uh, essentially an offshoring business. We help people hire, hire staff members in the Philippines. Uh, we specialize in sales, marketing, and service staff. Um but we also do things like HubSpot implementations. So, you know, if you're going to have offshore staff, it's really important that you are able to keep control of what's going on and track the work and make sure that quality is at the right level. So we do that for people as well. And uh, the Rev Up, my podcast, is essentially about revenue growth, all things revenue growth. 
Uh, we tend to break things into smaller chunks, but mostly focus on to um, the stories that other people that I know that are some of the best in the business at at revenue growth, what they've done to do it. Lots of different scenarios. Some people in big enterprise, some people in small business, some people in tech, some people in hospitality all over the place, uh, events, businesses. Um, but what are the things that are working, actually working now based on real data that actually are effective and help businesses to grow? Because I think there's a lot of stuff that, um, you know, that businesses have been doing, particularly the last three or four years that maybe were working 10 years ago, that now we're just doing because we always did them. And the results that we get from them actually are probably much worse than most people think. And so a lot of the rev up is what is really working, but also disproving some of the things that really aren't working as well. Hmm. How would you sell ice to Eskimos? Well, why would you? There's plenty of ice there already. Wouldn't you rather go and sell ice somewhere else where there's not a lot of ice? Potentially, but what if it's like ice that is more resistant or it's drinkable ice? I mean, look, if they don't already have good drinkable ice and good systems for doing it, then fine. In in most markets, you can actually enter into a market where there's a lot of competition and where you just have to find a way to differentiate. Sometimes it's just do things better. I mean, there's a, there's a number of ways to differentiate. You can do it cheaper, you can do it faster, you can do it safer, or you can do it better. Sometimes the best business model is move in next to a restaurant who's doing really well and do it slightly better than them because you know that the location works, you know that the clientele are there. So if I was going to sell, if I absolutely had to sell ice to Eskimos, which to be honest, I hate working in commodity markets, so I probably wouldn't. Um, but if I absolutely had to, I'm just looking for a way to make it more efficient for somebody. Um, because if they're using ice to, I don't know, make igloos, melt into water, whatever they're using it for, then I want to find an easier way for them to be able to do that, identify what they're finding difficult about uh, the way that they're currently doing it, see if I can improve it, and then enter myself into that that gap where that improvement can exist and make their life a little bit easier. Ultimately, yeah. it's just how, how can I help? Right. Or if it's purpleized, they could build a purple igloo. Or if it's non-transparentized and they've got one chance out of 50 to find a fossil and uh, sell that fossil for $10 million. Yeah. Uh, or maybe they want a transparent ice so that they can have a, a window, you know? Right, exactly. Uh, good one. The business itself. First, I love the name, Trust the Process, TTP. Second, outsourcing business. I'm not bullish on this business because, yeah. I mean, I've been uh, in that business myself and I visited Philippines call centers and so forth. Plus I think, and yeah, wasn't never like convinced at, with Philippines, uh, Filipinos and employees precisely. I'm way more bullish on let's say Serbia or India to hire uh, folks. And mm -hmm. last, I do think that AI is going to wipe a good part of that. So what do you have to say uh, against these uh quote-unquote objections <laughs> um i think they're all they're all valid the one on location you might have to remind me of what each of them are as we go because i'll go one at a time so yeah serbia um the one serbia, about location I, and india i think yeah. let's keep those just to those two because i have others but yeah these two yeah. 
So for me, I've I've hired people in 31 countries now. Um and all of them have have differences, right? They have differences in their social norms, particularly in their work-based social norms. And so what I've found in those 31 different places is that they're all good. They're all challenging for their own reasons, right? Um, I've hired in India. I have never, never hired in Serbia, never hired anywhere in the sort of Balkans region. Um, but the differences in each country ultimately are, to me, it's kind of like sports. Okay. I'm looking for, no, I'm not looking for what can't you do. I'm looking for what can you do, right? And then I'm looking to figure out how I draw the best out of that. And India versus the Philippines, for example, is a great one because uh, India is a very mature BPO market. Philippines is a very mature BPO market. They both have been heavily invested in by their own countries, governments, et cetera, uh, and the companies that operate there. So the infrastructure is really good. The talent pipeline, I would say, has gotten far more expensive than it used to be and and far more competitive, um, but it is far more defined. And so it's easier in some ways, harder in others. But the big difference in the sort of social norms and the communication that you get between those two countries in particular, like let's say for customer service, for example, is that when somebody argues with a Filipino customer service agent, what they get back is very soft and yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, let me find out, right? And with good training and good quality control, that can be really well managed. And the natural reaction from a social norms perspective, somewhere like India, is far more likely to be trying to explain the reason why the thing went wrong, which in customer service can be infuriating for right. the customer. Right. So when you're picking your location, you have to understand what's the strengths and what's the weaknesses of the individual location by the social norms and the communication styles, you know, even things like power distance. So in the Philippines, there's a really large power distance between managers and people and so, and the staff. And so one of the big challenges in the Philippines is you'll very rarely get told that anything's ever wrong or that, that people don't understand things. And so you have to adapt. If you're going to get the most out of the Philippines, you have to personally adapt how you manage rather than saying, does that make sense? Do you understand? And they say, yes. You say, okay, show me. <laughs> Tell you me what your understanding of it is, right? You have to, you have to just do a little bit more testing. Um, whereas if you hire somewhere like Hong Kong, for example, and you say, does that make sense? They'll say, no. <laughs> right? You'll get far more of that, uh, but it'll be, the burden will be on you, right? <clears throat> to make it, to make the explanation work. So the Philippines for me, one of my absolute favorite places to hire people. Um, I've heard people say to me, um, you get no loyalty in the Philippines. And I say, you probably didn't show them the kind of loyalty that matters to them because it is a very community-based, family-based culture. And if you treat people like I don't know, real human beings that are really a part of your team that really matter and you care about them as individuals. I get, I've had better loyalty out of the Philippines than anywhere I've ever hired people, right? 
you just have to be aware of those things, you know, those individual differences and adapt your style. Hmm. Loyalty is in the workplace is quite interesting, except from your co-founders and people that have stake in the business, shares or profit shares of some kind. I rarely ever got loyalty. I mean, I've got some shades of it, you know, folks staying with me three, four years, but rarely did I ever get full loyalty. My, and yeah, you answered the question really well with Phil Bynes, so good job on that. Um, the AI part, do you think mm. BPO will be enhanced or wiped out by AI? And don't give me that the they will be enhanced, uh, they won't be replaced, classic answer. <laughs> give me a bit more nuance. Sure. Um, I'll, I'm I'm a completely open book with this stuff. Like, I'll just tell you exactly what I'm thinking. Look, trust the process as a business. We ultimately care a lot about personal relationships because that's just how we personally like to do business. I'd rather go and meet with somebody in the city and have a coffee and have a chat and get to know somebody bef- and in order to do business with them. That's just a personal style thing. There's not a lot of scale to that. And so if you want to do any of those things, the technologies that we have available to us now certainly make it easier to be able to scale some things. As far as outsourcing and BPOs and AI are concerned, the BPOs that do nothing about it are going to get wiped out, right? The BPOs that sit there and do nothing about it are going to be wiped out. There are some things where a human being, I think, is still going to be pretty heavily required for a while but enhanced by AI, there are some roles that are just going to get completely removed, right? Like things like um, bookkeepers, for example. If you've built a BPO business around bookkeeping, you better be diversifying. That 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 shit's going to go away. Sorry, I hope you don't mind. You can Is swear. It okay, to swear. Okay, good. That shit's going to go away. There's heaps of these roles that are really just, um, you know, take a point of data, move a point of data. And any of that stuff is going to go away. I think also anything where uh, there's going to be some kind of um, instruction, like a lot of the VA executive assistant type stuff is going to go away uh, through the voice command stuff. Even link. Okay. So here's a good example. Even the links between something like um, chat GPT and something like HubSpot. Now, a lot of the AI being used, between lots of different systems, HubSpot's got their own setup in terms of AI, you're going to be able to do things like just tell your assistant um, what to do in HubSpot with a particular deal. Hey, I just spoke to Charles Cormier. Um, I need you to move the deal from discovery book to discovery had, and I need you to add the notes. What notes do you need me to add? (laughs) I need you to add the notes right change the close date to the 15th of september boom all of that stuff that otherwise would have been kind of manual movement i think is all going to be done by voice command as much as possible which is going to be super enabling for like field based sales which like there's not just field based sales people this is like the small business arena where founders are going around and doing meetings with people and they never update their CRM or use it properly because they can't be bothered doing it on their phone. Like all that stuff's going to go away, that executive assistant, VA stuff, basic data entry. Um, And any BPO that is not using AI to enhance the people 
in probably in five years probably won't exist very much. But I do think there is going to be another consolidation moment in the BPO industry probably sometime soon. Lots of purchasing where you get a lot of the smaller ones freaking out about the fact that they don't know what to do about AI and their business is going to disappear. And the big ones going, well, we know what to do with all those people and clients. So let's take them up uh, and get value for money because people are freaking out. So we'll get them at discount rates. So lots of, lots of things coming. I think it's, I mean, obviously it's a massive disruptor. Anybody that's not using it for some level of, you know, first round copywriting and all of that sort of stuff is falling behind already or has fallen behind already. Don't you think everyone's going to own their own little business and have AI agents as employees? Uh, no, I don't think that because I don't think that in the medium to long term that AI is ultimately going to sit in the hands of small businesses. Uh, will they be able to like lease them? You know, like the future of of something like a BPO might be that the that the tech owner is the BPO agency that leases out the virtual employees to a degree. Um, but I think that if we think of it too much in human terms, I think we're limiting our thinking a little bit. Um, it's probably not going to be like this is an individual employee. I think if anything, it's just that AI will be able to more intelligently take over entire processes end to end, um, where the end to end um, doesn't involve some kind of human interaction. I I genuinely believe human interaction does not go away, right? What some makes of it. You think that. Okay, so okay, so I'm I. I don't believe that fully because, for example, where we've got to with some of the chatbots is pretty amazing. Um, And I think that there is a changing expectation from consumers where they care less so long as they get a good result and it's easy. You know, the, the whole idea in the world of customer experience that you need to delight your customers, actually step one is you just need to make it easy to work with you. And so chatbots, for example, where they've got to, people were pissed off at them for years because they would jump on and they would go, this doesn't feel like a human. But actually the biggest problem was they weren't getting the answer that they wanted and they were saying, I need this answer and the chatbot was not giving it to them. That was the real problem. So they were like, I want to talk to a real person. But where they've developed to is most of the time you get freaking great answers. You probably get better answers than you get from a human being because a human being can't store all of that information perfectly in their head, right? Here's the 4,000 answers that we need to the questions that we get, right? And all of the orders that it might take. If I go into a chatbot on some of the bigger companies that are really working on this stuff, most of the time I get way better answers way faster than if I talk to a person who passes me between departments and can't get an answer for me. So some stuff that's human interaction, I think will definitely go away. And part of that is that consumers... So long as it's easier and more convenient for them, they don't care whether it's a person. But uh, there's stuff like sales, for example, where oh, even the even of sales process is becoming more and more online. Even B two B people, there's lots of stuff people would even up to you know tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars will want to do ninety five percent of the process online maybe just talk with somebody to get a couple of questions answered, but 
you know, for that human connection piece. But the human stuff to me is just, it's so fundamental in business. Um, I ultimately want to get a result, but maybe it's just me. I want to have some fun and, and talk to people and, and, and enjoy myself along the process. And uh, Charles Avatar right now, you wouldn't even realize. Oh, I mean, if I don't realize, I don't realize, but I don't, this is a maybe a personal preference thing. I don't want to do all of my business like this, right? right. I don't want to do, I don't want to do all of my business online. Uh, my preference in life is for the real world. <laughs> And so um, yeah, I'm learning that I'm a weird kid. You know, I grew up behind a computer screen and being very good at video games. So I guess somewhat yeah. natural, but I, I love meeting people. I met three CEOs that this year here in Oaxaca and uh, yeah. was it Epic? I, I'm weird. I think I have a preference for screen and maybe I can unlearn that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's definitely more awkward the first time meeting in person yes um it's so much easier to just you know i think a lot of people for years have said like oh people online are more fake i don't think that that's true i actually think a lot of people are more real and more themselves online hmm. because there is that digital barrier right they're less they're less afraid to be judged because they can just turn it off or just switch to someone else or go to a different app, right? When you're there with somebody, you literally have to stand up and walk away and make an excuse, right? Um, or punch so I them, think, but... karate kick them and sleep. <laughs> I mean, you can do that if you absolutely have to. Um, but my, it's my preference, right? And I like that awkwardness. I like that that realness of of the real life stuff. And so... To me, there'll always be an element of that. If we are not placing any time limits on this, sure, are we going to be at a point sometime in three, five, ten years where huge portions of even this sort of stuff, you just can't tell the difference? Probably. Will people fight back against that? Maybe. They will. Um, I it's not yeah. a maybe it's like there will be people that will stick <clears throat> to humans I think there will be laws you know and seals this is a real human will there be litmus test i don't think so like uh, it's intelligent enough it's so hard to tell it apart by the way do you have mm. more time ahead of you yeah yeah i'm, I'm okay okay cool because yeah i i see laws you know retaining this wall and I see human egos, you know, I don't want to speak to a bot. And my question for you, that human, because that humanness is very much reproducible. Now, on uh, in the physical world, that we will see, it's like a Super Bowl going many directions, you know. I think there will be a time in which de doing deals physically will really have a, a prime, a peak, um, because of all these AIs, right? just like physical jobs will be slower to replace because robotics of this physical world is slower to take vs computer science that keeps evolving super quick online. So it'll be interesting, but I do think one thing, one thing's for sure. Well, newer gens, they do have access to this tech, you know, so my worries is like, will they have an equal chance to like the AI oligarchs possibly 
uh, older gens, I don't think they stand a chance. I think they'll, mm. yeah, like boomers, for example, they they have trouble troubled using a cell phone. You know, I think some of them adapted finally with COVID, but using agents, deploying agents, and you know, using technology to achieve your means, hmm, that'll be interesting. And yet, then the the ultimate question is like, where does that take sales? You know. <laughs> will it be like will it be fully product led I, I think that's the finality in 20 25 years from now i don't think there'll be a salesperson or i, I maybe their titles will change maybe it will more, be more like fully customer service what do you think about that look I'll, i'll preface this by saying this is not my area of specialty right i'm not a super technical person um In terms of the Dunning-Krieger effect, I am at the the peak of ignorance. So I know enough <laughs> to think that I know something and I don't know enough to know how much I don't know. Um, and so I have some, like, I think it's probably better for me to share, like, what am I, what am I worried about with this stuff? Yeah. Because, because I am, you know, I'm one of the people that doesn't know enough to know really what is possible. I only know what I see from clients that I work with and from my own personal experiences and those sorts of things. And so I'm I'm very worried for the working class, right? I'm very I'm very worried for the hundreds of millions of people that rely on jobs like customer service, truck driving, etc., 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 etc. and I'm very worried that we don't yet have a very good framework for who's going to be responsible for the displacement of those people. Uh, you take power away from the masses by not by them not having the ability to self-actualize and earn their own money and make their own way in the world because you remove all of the sort of low skill, low paying roles from around the world, then. I'm very worried for them. I'm very worried for who's going to be responsible for them. Yeah. I think that AI is a moment where actually the government needs to step up significantly and we have a major problem that the majority of the powers of the world, the government is pretty significantly influenced by the businesses who will control the AI. So... I'm very worried for all those people. It is a concerning future that we have not yet worked our way through. And every time I get a new um, piece of information that tells me something that's been worked out that is concerning, I try very hard to not just take that piece of information and run with it and go, oh my God, the world is going to end. This is all bad because I think there's certainly some very good things that will probably come from it. If you think about some of the industries where we have low paying uh, workers, which is not always low skilled, by the way, some of those industries, we have significant problems because we don't have the budgets to be able to fulfill the need. Things like we have an aging population around the world with horrific aged care in almost every country, right? And we can't fill the workers or fulfill the need. And so if... AI and technology allows us to improve the ability to care for aging citizens, then amazing, right? 
But if it completely replaces the people with robots and AI, well, then there's going to be displaced workers as well. So there's lots of things I'm, I'm very unsure of and I'm very worried about in part because I don't know enough. Um, but there's certainly some things that I'm excited for, you know, as far as things like customer service, how, how the thing, the thing that I worry about and to, to your point kind of around, um, around workers and who owns them and those sort of things in the future, who, sorry, who employs them, um, <laughs> All the small really dystopian. Um, but I mean, you're it's not you said that word for a reason. It might the be, AI you know, version, a, a yeah. Tyrell Corp, like in Blade Runner 2049. Yeah. And it it could be like an API between a freelancer and any company that wants to employ this freelancer. And if you're this API, well, you're in charge of finding all their contracts. I, I think that it'll be the future, like someone having eight clients instead of one. Um, yeah. But yeah, go on. Um, I'm just real. I'm really, I'm really worried for the ability of the everyday working person to have the ability to, to jump classes. Right. Um, which, you know, things like social media take somebody that's a freaking college kid to one of the richest people in the world, a Mark Zuckerberg, because he was able to utilize that technology to be able to make that jump. And there's hundreds of thousands and millions of examples of people that are able to do these sorts of things. But at some point, if you take the person out of some of that early stage startup type stuff and you replace it with a robot slash software that is owned by somebody who is already rich, you start to remove class mobility. And that is obviously also very concerning. So all of these things in the, in the further in the future are probably way closer maybe than I give them credit for. Um, I'm thinking of these things in 20 years, maybe they're much sooner than that. Um, but, all those things are very concerning. The the now is if you don't use it and don't support it, you will get left behind. So if you want to be one of the people <laughs> that ultimately has a say, you only do that in this current world and this current system with money. And so you're going to have to use it in order to to drive your business and to drive your situation forward, I I would hazard a guess. Yeah, there's micro mechanisms that might slow down this shit nami. Let's call it that way. Um, for example, physical jobs, right? Most of the time, they're less educated folks. Not talking about engineers here, but if I look outside here in Mexico, the guy selling uh, corn elotes. Um, I mean, it's very hard to reproduce like this physical reality. Um, so he's gonna, not going to go away anytime soon. Although like there could be a Tyrell Corp that all the economics and, until yeah. the economics support it. Okay. So right. if a big company realized that by using robots and AI, that mm -hmm. they could make a huge amount of money right. by selling corn on the street right? and the corn was better 
and more hygienic, remember? Safer, faster, better, cheaper. If they could do those things, the consumers are going to end up eventually buying from the corn robot rather than the corn person. Yeah. But robotics is super hard again. But yeah, Yeah. I I can see that. At first, I'm still choosing the the corn guy, right? Mm. At first, I'm fighting against it. But I see this beautiful, shiny corn corn stand and I look at the corn and and I hear from people, oh, it's so delicious. All right, well, i got to try it at least once. And then it is so delicious and it just seems cleaner and more hygienic. So it's probably safe. And you just start going through this conditioning process where eventually you say, I'm my want to buy from the guy has been replaced by my desire for better, cheaper, safer things. But are there these scenarios of nostalgia in which you buy things because they're like the good old times? For example, (laughs) the two scenarios here in my case, going to the movie theaters, I still love doing it, but I do have memories and anchored to that. And the city that I'm in right now, Oaxaca, I often tell people I open my laptop, it's 2050 in there. And when I go back to this reality here, it's 2005 here in Oaxaca. Um, mm-hmm. So I love that old-ish aspect, that romantic, um, what's that, 1963, like or George Orwell? What was that book again? 1973. Oh, George Orwell, 1984. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for picking me up on that. Um, there's some of that in that book too, you know, it's like the future with the the good old times under the tree where no one um mm. where the cameras cannot see us. Do you do you still buy stuff because of nostalgia? Of course I do. And you mentioned the the cinema. Um, who is currently better at leveraging nostalgia in marketing than the movie industry? Very good. Right. So big companies have access to nostalgia too. So there's that moat, you know, that's a moat right there. That's somewhat when you link someone to the emotions, when I enter the movie theater and smell the popcorn, even though I have to make a fucking 20 minutes line and wait, that's a moat right there. They got me, you know, forever, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Because you've got that link to nostalgia, big companies have just as much access to that for marketing as small companies. They can recreate nostalgia in, in a thousand different ways. Um, it's a really smart marketing tactic. You know, that's why movie theaters often will actually um, pump the smell of the popcorn out from the movie theater. That's why Subway pumps the smell of the cooking bread out of the Subway stores, right? That like, weird odor, that weird yeah. yeast odor. Yeah, they want you to smell it because it it triggers and then you're in. Away you go. Yeah. Okay, let's close the AI one because I want to talk about podcasting um, okay. with you. You have done a bunch of episodes. Why the pod? Do you get clients out of it? Do you get higher closing rates? Do you get awareness? Why the pods? What were the goals? Have you achieved these goals yet? Um, look, we, we run two podcasts. So we run the rev up. You can find both of them everywhere. We run the rev up and we run military mindset for business. Our founders are former uh, military officers in the Australian army. Uh, and so one of our founders, Pete Liston runs the military mindset for business podcast. Um, we started doing this because 
Well, I, I would say actually in large part because of somebody we've both had on our podcast, Chris Walker. I started listening to him a while back thanks to the recommendation of a friend uh, who is, I would say, one of the best I know in the world for um, things like account-based marketing, selling software, building pipelines in, in software businesses. Um, and it just, it just really made sense to me and really hit, hit a mark because um, I've been in so many businesses where what marketing are judged on is leads. What sales are judged on is revenue, right? But so often marketing would hit the target for the leads and sales wouldn't call the leads and sales might miss their target. Or sometimes they'd hit, but they're hitting the target without calling the leads. And so it's like, what is the point of this? And when you really look deeply at it, right, how many businesses are out there saying, oh, the sales team are lazy. They're not calling the leads. Okay. Think about that logic for one second. And it is counterintuitive. If the sales team are lazy and the leads are good, would they call them? Because the sales team can't be lazy and the leads be good. If they're lazy, they will take the path of least resistance. So if the leads are good, they're obviously going to call the leads. I've been in many sales teams where the sales teams are saying, give me more leads because the leads are good. I've been in sales teams where the sales teams are saying, I'm not going to call the leads. And if a sales team would rather freaking cold call somebody than call the leads, then the leads are probably dog shit, right? The two things can't be, can't be true, lazy and good leads. And so I've seen this personally. And so, okay, so what do we need to do? Well, in marketing, we need to provide pipeline. We need to actually start providing people to the sales team who are ready to buy, who want to buy. And what do you get from that? You get the pushback of, well, I don't hire salespeople that don't have to do any selling. I don't want to pay them all that money to take orders, right? Again, why are you trying to hurt yourself? If the sales team just take orders, do you make more money? Yes. What about your burden for growth? Because if the sales team have to do so much nurturing and so much work to do every deal, how big does your, your very expensive sales team have to be in order for you to be able to scale? Okay, so what if the, what if the people coming in were actually ready or almost ready to buy, connected to your brand, excited to work with you rather than with your comp competitors? They want to get answers from you rather than just get an answer. What if that happened? How big of a sales team would you need to, to scale? If your conversion rates from, let's say, a discovery meeting had was 25%, how does that impact your ability to scale over a, over a sales team where your discovery had meetings convert at 3%? What's your difference in scaling? It's freaking massive. So we're building all over the world these ginormous sales teams, these bloated sales teams to work on these horrifically shitty leads 
rather than looking at it the other way and saying, let's build amazing leads from an amazing audience who want to work with us, who want to get their information from us. They come to us and they say, tell me what I need to do next to go down the route of outsourcing, HubSpot, whatever those things are. And so that to me, just it just makes sense. If you can nail your marketing in terms of your demand creation and your demand capture and feed your sales team with qualified people who want to buy, and that won't always work perfectly. You might still do some cold outreach. You might still do a whole bunch of other things. You might still run Google ads, whatever. But if the majority of your pipeline comes from people who are listening to you as a source of information and knowledge with trust, and those people come to you, the conversion rates are through the freaking roof. So why wouldn't you want to scale that? And so that to me is what a podcast audience, a YouTube audience that is coming to me because my area of expertise is revenue growth, right? And then they need to hire teams for their sales, for their marketing, for whatever. Who's the person they want to talk to about that? They want to talk to me about it. And so that's why we did it. <clears throat> How's it going so far? Um, it's real. It's a really hard game, right? It's a hard game because making good, great content is a difficult thing to do. You have to really think about it deeply. You have to think about, you have to really understand your customer. I think that's really the main thing. What are their problems? What are they thinking? What are they feeling? What are the questions they're asking? What are they worried about? What are they hoping to achieve? Where are they trying to get? You just have to understand them at a really visceral, deep level. And if you do, then you start thinking, how do I answer those questions for them? How do I make them feel confident? How do I create models for them so that that really complicated topic becomes simple for them and they can understand what the pathway is through it? How do you um, get these questions and these hints at what problems they're facing? Are these your customers? Do you use forms for that? Is that you talking to potential clients and seeing that? How do you mix all of that up to make the best questions and the best content for them? Um, so I'll preface this by saying I'm 14 episodes into my podcast, right? I don't think I yet make great podcasts. I think they're pretty good. We're getting good result, uh, good feedback from them, but we're 14 in, right? So how do I make great content for them? I'm still on, I'm, I think I'm still on the quest for it, but how do I know what they need? Um, there's a whole bunch of things you can do. But the number one thing, and I've talked about this whole like talking to people stuff, um, is just talk to people. <laughs> talk to your avatar. Decide who your core avatar is, who your perfect customer is, right? Because that is who your audience should be. And so if you talk to them all the time about what's happening in their business, about where they're trying to go, if you actually have sales calls with them, research calls with them, all of this sort of stuff, that's how you get to know, right? Right. That's I think it's like know. natural for us salespeople, the, this podcasting thing, which brings me to another contrarian prediction, which is that most SDRs are going to run podcasts in a year from now, most meaning 51% of them. So that's quite contrarian right there. Um, 
but I've seen trends like cold emailing and uh, machine learning and cold emails, and I've seen everyone adopt it from one day to the next. So what, what do you think about that prediction right there? Um, I think 51% is a lot because I would say, and I apologize in advance to my SDR friends out there. Uh, I'm not talking about any of you. Okay. Um, I would say far less than 51% of SDRs have anything particularly interesting to say. Okay. But can they ask questions though? In a podcast? Yeah. Do you, you, you mean just doing client interviews and things like that for their podcast? Yep. They yeah, can do be, that. Because um, like client meetings are just like pods, you know, you just ask questions and listen. Yeah. I, I think if if the SDR role um, continues to increase in its importance in businesses, you'll get higher paid staff who have more of something to say. I think even if you are interviewing people, um, I speak to a lot. I speak to a lot of SDRs, and I think a huge portion of them would not be ready to record something that they're presenting out to the world. And I think so many companies would look at what is being produced and say, we're not putting that out on our brand. Right. So for me, it's, um, I don't think so. Happy to be proven wrong. Um, but ultimately the company is going to control the channel and the vast majority of SDRs are, are hired by big tech companies, et cetera. And they're probably going to prefer to have single voices. However, lots of SDRs have podcasts now because some of them are incredibly smart and inc lots of them are incredibly smart and incredibly entertaining. I think one of the best examples of this is somebody who's just gone from being an SDR to being somebody that produces freaking amazing content because they are funny as hell, as well as being uh, incredibly insightful is, um, uh, Tom Boston. Don't know if anybody out there follows Tom Boston. Super, super funny guy. And I'm probably going to mess this up, but I'm pretty sure Tom is at Sales Loft. Um, if it's outreach, I apologize so much, Tom, but uh, one of those two SDR type platforms. <laughs> um, whichever one you work for is my favorite one. Okay. Um, but his content is freaking amazing. Everybody should follow him. He's so funny. He makes amazing SDR content. He makes amazing content for clients. Um, and people like that absolutely should be put on a platform and, and we should be saying to them, um, you know, go and make great content. 51% um, of anything happening in a short period of time is always a bridge too far in my eyes. <laughs> 5%. Hey, 5% would be massive. <laughs> right. Huh. Okay. Let's, let's check in on that one. Um, last question, which I ask guests on this pod usually is you're on your deathbed, you know, what will you want to have accomplished and what would be your legacy? Hmm. That is a good question. And it's not a particularly easy one to answer. <laughs> um, I would say, I don't think it would have a lot to do with work, to be honest. It would have, it would a bit for sure. Um, 
but I would want to be, I would want to be somebody that my friends, my family, my colleagues feel like, um, was there for them when they needed them. Right. Really helpful, really present in crisis, but also, um, somebody who really celebrated their successes. I really would would love for people to remember me as somebody who saw the best in people and helped them to see it in themselves. Because often the things that are best in us, we find it hardest to see, uh, just like we find it easy to get annoyed at other people for the things we don't see in ourselves. Um, but honestly, mostly, I would want to be, I would want my legacy to be that my son uh, knew me as a dad who loved him and told him that, um, who supported him, who told him the truth when he needed to hear it, when he needed to be saved from himself sometimes, but always had his back and to help. And, you know, a dad that helped him make his own mark on the world, not an extension of mine, but his own personal, you know, fit to him what he wants to be mark on the world that's what would matter most to me love it dude where can people find out more about you and your podcast uh they can hit me up on linkedin uh my extension on linkedin is forward slash sales is a skill i think it is absolutely something you can learn so sales is a skill is the extension um and then the best place to get in touch or to find out more about us is our website, which is ttprocess.co. And if you ever want to have a conversation, all roads lead to Rome on that website. Any form that you fill out uh, will come through to my team. And if you want to have a catch up, you absolutely can. But you can also just DM me on LinkedIn if anyone's got any questions or wants to talk outsourcing uh, or HubSpot. Mm-hmm.